Politics, football, faith, and theology. You're listening to Pfft Podcast, and I'm your host, Daniel. You could call this uh, an unpopular opinions edition of Pfft, because I'm going to be talking about animal cruelty. Uh, so there was a law just passed, or I guess it's not a law technically, because Trump hasn't signed it, but he's expected to. It's called the PACT Act. Uh, PACT stands for Prevention of Animal Cruelty and Torture. And the idea is basically what you'd expect. It's a law that makes uh, animal torture illegal. Okay, so it seems, seems innocuous enough, um, which is why my opinion about it is going to be unpopular. In fact, my opinion about it is so unpopular that this animal anti-animal torture law passed both houses of Congress, listen to this, unanimously. <laughs> okay? Nobody objected to it. And now I don't know I don't think it was uh, actually I don't think they actually took a vote it was some voice vote but it was it was unanimous it was you know nobody objected to it. So so of all of the members of Congress 435 I think in uh, in the House and 100 in the Senate not a single person objected to it. Everybody could agree that this law should be passed. I disagree, okay? Uh, so that's how unpopular my opinion is. And and let me explain why I disagree. So the law basically prevents, uh, it makes it illegal to, to torture animals or uh, whatever. The problem with that is not the law itself. The problem with that is who's making the law, okay? So this is a good law. It should be, it, it's a law that should exist, and it does exist, in fact, already at the state level in, in pretty much every state. I, I don't know exactly what all the differences are between different states in, in terms of their animal cruelty laws, but I know that a lot of states, if not all of them, have restrictions on animal cruelty, and if you just go out and torture a puppy in your backyard, the government's probably going to do something about it. The state government is probably going to do something about it. So now the federal government has decided, we need to make this a federal crime as well. Now why would the federal government want to make this a crime as well? If state governments are already making it a crime, well, I guess there are maybe two reasons. One is you might think that, well, some states might not make it a crime, or might not make it a crime the way we think it should be a crime, might have different, uh, classify it as a different kind of crime, maybe a state would classify it as a misdemeanor, we think it should be a felony, or maybe a state would classify it as a felony, we think it should be a misdemeanor. So we need the federal government to decide what it should be. Because the federal government never gets anything wrong, right? You know, the, the assumption there is that you shouldn't leave the states to decide what sorts of things to make crimes, and and how they should classify those crimes, because a state might get it wrong, and so the federal government needs to make sure to pass the law the right way, as if the federal government could never get a state wrong. This is what boggles my mind whenever people say, you know, we, can't, we shouldn't have laws about X at the state level, or we shouldn't leave state governments to make decisions about something as important as, I don't know, say, education, uh, because a state might get it wrong. A state might do the wrong thing with education. And people who say that, it just doesn't occur to them that the federal government also might do the wrong thing. So, uh, that's, uh, but, but anyway, um, so, so I, I want to I look at how this uh, law is justified on constitutional grounds, or according to its proponents. Of course, I think it's unconstitutional, but uh, I, I'm sure that the Supreme Court would probably disagree with me. Um, because the Supreme Court has made some very bad decisions about this. So just uh, a background, just to clarify, so we're all on the same page. Here's how the Constitution works. The state governments get to do anything that a government can do, okay? Unless the, unless the U.S. Constitution explicitly says 
this part isn't the job of the state government. This part is the job of the national federal government. So that's actually exactly the Tenth Amendment. It says that the power is not delegated to, uh, I don't have it exactly in front of me, but, but the gist of it is the power is not delegated to the United States in this Constitution, nor prohibited by this Constitution to the states, are reserved to the states respectively or to the people, meaning that if the Constitution says the federal government can do something, that means they can do it. If the Constitution doesn't say anything about it, that means the state governments can do it and the federal government can't. The Constitution, by the way, does not have a clause that says Congress has the power to make animal cruelty illegal. Okay? So, so there's this thing called enumerated powers. That means that there's a list in, I think it's Article 1, Section 8 of the Constitution. I'm going to be embarrassed if that's wrong, but I think that's right. Article 1, Section 8. Yes, powers of Congress. All right. So Article 1, Section 8 of the Constitution enumerates all of the powers that Congress has. It says it says all the things they can do. All right. So they can lay and collect taxes, duties, imposts, and excises. Um, it says the things they're allowed to collect taxes for. They can borrow money on the credit of the United States. This is, this is the important one for today. They have the power to regulate commerce with foreign nations and among the several states and with the Indian tribes. And then they can uh, establish a uniform rule of naturalization, meaning how people become citizens, and uniform laws on the subject of bankruptcies. So bankruptcy law is in the power of Congress. Uh, you don't want to be, I guess, bankrupt in one state but not in another state. You know, uh, you might have a creditor in one state, and uh, you know the bankruptcy law should be uniform all all across the United States. And then the federal government, of course, you know, the Congress has the power to coin money to regulate its value, and uh, and then to provide for the punishment of counterfeiting. Uh, to establish post offices and post roads. I guess post roads means roads for post offices, and there, there's more things. I'm not going to get into all of them. The power to declare war, and that's another big one. Only Congress can, can declare war, okay? But anyway, uh, let's go back to this one about commerce. To regulate commerce with foreign nations and among the several states and with the Indian tribes. Believe it or not, that is the uh, part of the Constitution that proponents of this animal cruelty law are using to justify... Congress passing this law. In fact, pretty much any federal law, if you if you listen to the things I just listed, and there's a few more, but, but that's pretty much it. I mean, there's something about defunishing piracy on the high seas. Okay, that's not really something that comes up a lot today. You know, there's providing and maintaining an army and navy, uh, things like that. Um, if, you, if you didn't hear, if there's something that the federal government does, and you didn't hear me list it just now, I'll tell you what, they probably justify it based on that Commerce Clause, which is astounding, I know, but that's the truth. And here's here's what the Cong Commerce Clause originally means. Okay, so the Congress has the power to regulate commerce among the several states and with the Indian tribes and with foreign nations. So originally, here's the kind of cases that came up under the Commerce Clause. So the state of New York granted a monopoly to Robert Fulton on a, a, a monopoly for the steamboat, okay? So only Robert Fulton is allowed to operate steamboats in the state of New York. Well, that would be sort of like the state of Indiana, you know, where I live, the crossroads of America, right? Everyone's always driving, you know, semi-trucks through Indiana because I guess that's what they think Indiana is good for is, you know, getting, getting from where you are to where you want to be, right? <coughs> Fly over territory, drive over territory. Um... But anyway, what if in the state of Indiana were to say only Mack trucks are allowed to drive in the state of Indiana? I don't know, maybe because we all like Marlon Mack or something. 
only Mack trucks are allowed to drive in the state of Indiana. Well, then anybody who's trying to, you know, who lives in Illinois and wants to sell something to somebody in Ohio, maybe Amazon wants to, you know, ship some things, they are only allowed to use Mack trucks. Well, that, that that's commerce. That's commerce among the states. And, and what the Constitution says is the federal government has the authority to regulate commerce between states. And if Indiana were to make a law like that, that would be sort of stepping on the federal government's authority to do that. And the federal government's doing that because, you know, the federal government's neutral. The federal government is going to make sure that everybody can have commerce freely. That's the idea. Uh, so states can't, you know, impose tariffs on each other. States can't, uh, you know, make, give monopolies and say only a certain kind of, you know, truck is allowed to be used. Or in the case of this uh, older court case, only, you know, the state cannot say only Robert Fulton is allowed to operate steamboats in the state of New York because the state of New York, you know, at that time, operating a steamboat was sort of like operating a, a semi-truck, you know, in, in Indiana. It's how you how you transport goods from one state to another. Okay, so that's the sort of thing that this clause of the Constitution was intended for. That's the sort of thing that it was used for for a long time. In fact, um, but that changed... Around the time of the New Deal, as many things did. So here's a, a quotation from a later case I'm going to talk about, Gonzalez v. Rake from 2005. But here's a quote where they just talk a little bit about a history of the Commerce Clause. Quoting now, The Commerce Clause emerged as the framers' response to the central problem giving rise to the Constitution itself, the absence of any federal commerce power under the Articles of Confederation. For the first century of our history, a hundred years, the primary use of the clause was to preclude the kind of discriminatory state legislation that had once been permissible. Then, in response to rapid industrial development and an increasingly inter interdependent national economy, Congress, quote, ushered in a new era of federal regulation under the commerce power, beginning with the enactment of uh, the Interstate Commerce Act and the Sherman Antitrust Act. So something radically something changed radically and I guess the 18 maybe I said the New Deal I guess it really things started happening in the 1880s and 1890 but uh, th there was a, a radical change in how the Commerce Clause was viewed that maybe started then really kind of culminated I think in this uh, New Deal case Wickard versus Filburn in this is a 1942 case so maybe things started back in the Sherman Antitrust Act and, and stuff like that but but here's this case in 1942 here's what happened there was a law where the federal government, as part of a New Deal program, was trying to control how much uh, wheat farmers were allowed to grow, right? To try to stabilize wheat prices, which makes you know a lot of sense. Like people are people are hungry; they're not getting enough food, so you're going to make a law that says you're not allowed to grow more than a certain amount of wheat, so that there's not too much wheat going around. You know, the the federal government is so smart that way, right? Um, I, I mean, I guess the idea was that if you grow too much wheat, that will make wheat cheaper, and then that'll be bad for the wheat farmers, but. Uh, you know, it still seems to me like, you know, more food is a good thing when people are hungry, so uh, probably a bad law anyway, but certainly an unconstitutional law. In fact, uh, there was an Ohio farmer named Roscoe Filburn who was growing his own wheat on his own property, not to sell it, but to feed animals on his own farm, okay? So he's got a pig or a cow, whatever, I don't know what animals eat wheat. He, he's, he's growing wheat to feed his own animals. The federal government comes and tells him, no, that violates our law. And he says, whoa, you have the power to regulate interstate commerce. You don't have the power to tell me whether or not I can't grow wheat to feed my own animals. You'd think he'd win, right? You would think he'd win. He lost. I don't know why he lost. <laughs> it astounds me that he lost, but he did. Um, and the, the, the court ruled that because 
If you grow wheat on your own farm, it could potentially have an indirect effect on interstate commerce because, I don't know, maybe you'd be buying less wheat from other states. Maybe, maybe if you didn't grow your own wheat, you would buy wheat from somebody else. As if you can try to regulate other activity to try to make people engage in interstate commerce. I mean, it's, it's ridiculous. But that was what they ruled. An extremely similar case happened in 2005, and it, it blows my mind, but Scalia actually ruled uh, on the wrong side of this. The Gonzalez v. Rake. Somebody in California was growing marijuana for medical purposes on his own property just for himself. And marijuana was a federal crime. And so they, they I don't know, fined him, arrested him, whatever they did. And he said, well, that's not constitutional because that doesn't fall under interstate commerce power. And the Supreme Court, including Antonin Scalia, said, yes, it does. Because if you grow marijuana, that might somehow potentially affect interstate commerce. I don't know. Maybe maybe you're going to grow it, but then somebody else will take it from your property. Or maybe you'll you know, secretly sell it to somebody else. And we have to make sure that that never happens and that marijuana never crosses state lines. You know, the point is, the point is they're not really trying to regulate commerce here. They're trying to regulate what you do. They're trying to regulate whether or not you can have marijuana. Now, I'm not taking an opinion about marijuana here, except that it should be the state's job to decide whether or not you can smoke your own marijuana for medical purposes if you grow it yourself. Right? That's not the federal government's job, but they, they thought it was. And so, so that's how the Commerce Clause has been used to try to justify all kinds of laws that really commerce is not their purpose at all. Just like this torture law, you know, torturing animals. I really, really don't think that the government passed this law because they thought, man, interstate commerce really isn't going well, and so we need to we need to fix it with this law. No, they passed it because they don't want you torturing animals, which is a laudable goal. I just want to be clear. I don't actually support animal torture. My opinions are not that unpopular, but it's not the job of the federal government to try to keep you from torturing animals. That's the job of state governments, and so they use the Commerce Clause as a pretext for doing other things that aren't their job. So why is this a bad thing? First of all, it's just bad to not follow the Constitution. The Constitution is the law. It's the highest law of our land. And so if you, if the federal government does something that exceeds its constitutional power, that's wrong. Okay? Straight up. Um, you know, it's a bad precedent to say, well, Congress can just do anything that's good, regardless of whether or not it's constitutional, because who decides what's good? You know? That means they can do anything they want to you. You have no rights. Nobody has any. The states have no rights. The federal government just does what it wants, okay? Um, here's another thing, and I've sort of mentioned this earlier, is the idea of federalism, that states, by and large, should have the ability to regulate what goes on in the state as they see fit, because the federal government's not always going to make the best decision. I'm not saying this particular law, I haven't even looked into it, whether it's better or worse than your average state law, but I'll tell you this, sometimes the federal government's going to make laws that are better than some state laws, and sometimes they're going to make laws that are worse than, than state laws. And it's better to have 50 different states who can figure out what's the best way to, to address marijuana or what's the best way to address animal cruelty or anything else. It's better to have 50 different states that can figure that out. And finally, uh, Clarence Thomas made a good point in a recent case, uh, Gamble versus United States, which I actually talked about with Chris Green a few episodes ago. You should go look at that. I think it's episode 8 or 9. Um, and in Gamble versus United States... Clarence Thomas makes an excellent point. He says um, that basically if the federal government and the state government are both allowed to make the same thing illegal, if, if they both have this sort of power in the same area, like, for example, 
the federal government and state bo government both make animal cruelty illegal, then somebody who breaks that law could be tried for both a federal crime and for a state crime, which actually violates the spirit of double jeopardy. You know, you could be you could be punished twice or tried twice if you know you get cleared. You know, uh, you get convicted once and you get uh, <laughs> not convicted the other time. Um, you might get tried twice for the same for the same crime because the they're overstepping their power and overlapping uh, in their authority, and so so that's another issue. So so there's a lot of reasons why this kind of thing should not happen, and this is just one tiny example. There, there's laws that get passed like this all the time, but this is just one tiny example of the kind of law that the federal government thinks it it has the right to pass under the Commerce Clause. And it needs to stop. All right. Thank you for listening. Please subscribe if you haven't already. Um, and please join us next time.